Welcome to Lady Bits in Leadership, a brave space where women come together to share stories about our bodies, our sexuality, and motherhood. I'm your host, Dr. Sarah Vogel, and my mission in life is helping women feel less alone, process their trauma, and build the lives they desire. So if you're ready to join a community of women who have found their voices, who have become liberated from shame and reclaim their power, then you're in the right place, girl. You found us. We're so happy you're here. Happy Valentine's Day, my loves. Welcome back to Lady Bits and Leadership. This is the fourth episode, and I am so excited to share with you our conversation with Rashida Ahmed, who's a sex and intimacy coach located in Toronto, Canada. Go Raptors! We're going international with this baby. Anyway, it's Valentine's Day. I wanted to have this episode out because it's so full of spicy, sexy, pleasure-filled things just for you. We talk about how Rashida, from the time that she was a little girl, wanted to be a sex coach. Like, what? She was up in the public library studying about sex. We talk about how to create the sex life of your dreams, about how to navigate those conversations with your loved ones. We talk about the influence of her Christianity and Muslim background on understanding her body and her sexuality. And so in honor of Valentine's Day, um, in honor of this beautiful holiday that celebrates love, I just wanted to let you all know a couple fun facts. One, passing out Valentine's is a 600-year-old tradition. And it was started by a woman named Esther Howland. She was probably like, uh, bitch, where is my Valentine's? <laughs> Why don't you tell me you love me? You know what? I'm going to start. I'm just going to make this a thing. And you're going to have to tell me that you love me and give me presents, which I'm like, yes, queen, <laughs> get your presents and your love from your man. Um, the chocolate box for Valentine's has been around for more than 140 years. That's super fun. Um, and that there's a standout favorite in every box. My personal favorite is probably raspberry, like a really nice raspberry with a dark chocolate. Mwah. And a funny story about the chocolate box. Leo and I, our first Valentine's Day, that would be 2010. We had just gotten engaged around that time because I remember we went to the ring store and bought each other rings on a Valentine's Day sale because, you know, and we picked out each other's rings. We picked out our own rings and then bought it for one another with our separate accounts. But what I remember the most beyond getting engaged was how sweet he was around Valentine's Day. So we were going out to the North Shore to visit my family on Oahu. At the time, we were living in Waikiki. And we went down to the garage, the parking garage, because we lived in his apartment. And he said, hold on, I forgot something you know, probably said it was like insulin related. And I was like, okay. So I stayed in the car and he went back upstairs. Didn't think anything of it. We drove out, had a great weekend with my family, celebrated. And then when we came back to our apartment, went up the elevator, I opened the door and in front of me is the table is covered in gifts. There's a helium balloon in a heart shape. There's a box of chocolates in a heart shape. There is a card. I was like, what? There was flowers. There was roses. I was like, oh my God, look at this man. I was blown away. I was speechless. I had never been treated to a Valentine's like this before. And I walk up to it, tears in my eyes. And I look at the box of chocolates and I was like, Whitman's? You thought I would want Whitman's? <laughs> 
what an ungrateful bitch I was. <laughs> and I said, oh, I, it was probably more like, oh, nice. And he was like, what? You don't like the chocolate? I was like, no, I love chocolate, but like Whitman's. <laughs> I was like, I love you so much, but please never, ever buy me Whitman's again. I'm pretty sure I even like tried to eat the raspberry one. It was like, but can't be doing this. Um, I'm surprised he didn't break up with me after that. Like the audacity that I had to <laughs> question is he's a di- type one diabetic. He doesn't eat chocolate. He was so sweet. So it's, <laughs> I'm sorry. It will always be a memory that I cherish. It'll probably be the first time that Leo's like this bitch. I'll never be able to make her fully happy. Listen, I have high standards And you know what? I'm not going to apologize for that. Granted, every Valentine's Day moving forward, every chocolate purchase has never included Whitman. So, you know, sometimes standing up for what you need gets you exactly what you need for literally the rest of your life. So only eat good chocolate, people. Dark, preferably. Um, But with all that being said, welcome to our Valentine's edition. We are hosting the illustrious Rashida Ahmed. She's with me in the studio. We laugh so much during this episode. She is such a wonderful human. She's from Toronto. Yes, Canada, we're going international. I can't believe that. We have over 115 listeners, folks. I'm so stoked. Please continue to spread this good word to your girlfriends, your guy friends, anyone that you're friends with, because this information, although it's called Lady Bits and Leadership, is for everyone. Um, We laugh a lot. We talk about self-pleasure. We talk about the integration of culture, religion, and sexuality. And then we get really heavy and we actually talk about uh, our experiences, both of us, our experiences with abortion. So that is something that I held a lot of shame around. Uh, and kept in secret for a very, very, very long time. In fact, very few people know about it. And it takes a lot of vulnerability to share that on this podcast. But I believe there are so many women out there who have experienced this. And I don't want those folks, those women to live in shame anymore. The amount of abortions that happen, whether you are um, in a committed relationship or you're single, if you are not ready to be a mother, if there is a developmental disability with a fetus, if there's something serious in your health, we have the ability to have abortions. And it really should not be something that we are ashamed of. And yet we're often relegated to the corners to heal and come to understanding by ourselves. And it's amazing because she and I had very different experiences. We were in very different times in our lives. She was a teenager. I was a married adult. Um, But we both knew that the best thing for our lives, for our success in life, um, was that we were not ready to have children. And that if we had had children, things, our lives would have turned out very differently. And it would have been a really, really hard time for the baby that we would have brought into the world. And so I am happy to share this episode with you. I'm happy to share this experience with you. Um, For all the women out there that are holding on to that secret, I understand. I hear you. I see you. I love you. So I hope that although this episode does get serious, we do have a lot of fun talking about a lot of different things. And I just wanted to host this for Valentine's Day because I think 
we have to love one another. We have to love ourselves first and foremost. And so without further ado, here's Rashida Ahmed on Lady Bits and Leadership. So you are a sex and intimacy coach. Yes, I am. Okay. You have to tell us, how did you get there? (laughs) Everyone's got a different journey. You know, everyone's got such a different journey. So I'm so interested to hear more. So my journey, I'll say my journey definitely started when I was a young girl. So I was always very inquisitive, always very just wanting to know everything and wanting to learn about all the things. And I... (laughs) saw a show called Sunday Night Sex with Sue Johansson. I think I was around 11 or so. And I was that a Canadian show. It's a Canadian show, but it used to air late at night. She was a a very prominent sex educator who really just talked about sex and sort of a very she took away the clinical side of Mm -hmm. sex and she spoke about it in a very plain, simple language. She showed demonstrations of what to do and how to do it and really just you know, really gave information to people that wasn't available to them. And I remember seeing an episode when I was a young girl and I'm like, oh my gosh, like, this is amazing. I want to do that. Like, I don't know what she's doing (laughs) at the time, but I knew I wanted to do that. And how old were you? I think I was around 11. Like I was, I was. Okay. Do you remember if at the time you even had like sexual pangs or sexual feelings? Not at all. That's the thing. At that age, I really wasn't, I really wasn't explorative in that way um, (laughs) with my own sexuality. I wanted to learn about it because I knew that it was a topic that was not allowed to be spoken about in my household. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to know about it just because I couldn't know about it. Not because I actually wanted to engage (laughs) or know anything else. (laughs) Yeah, It was more so because you told me not to read about it. I'm going to read about it. (laughs) Parents, they don't get it. (laughs) That's not the way, people. Especially for a curious young girl like you, who is like, well, now I just, I want to know just for knowing sake. Yeah, just for knowing sake. Yeah. (laughs) So... That was around, um, yeah, early, like 11, 12, around that age. And then I really started to come into my own understanding of learning my own body and and playing with my own body and understanding how I was feeling internally as I got older. And I started to piece in some of the things that I was learning all on my own. So a lot of what I knew was all Mm self-educated and all self-taught because I couldn't ask any questions. I couldn't, like, I literally didn't have a person in my life that I could have even had a conversation about sex with. I mean, I think that's, that's so common, right? So like, let's, let's pause here for a second, because I think it's something that I haven't talked about yet on the show. And I think when I think about my sexual journey and I think about others who, you know, develop these formative thoughts about their bodies and about sexuality, I ultimately have to think about the first time that I masturbated. And you had just said that, like, you know, a lot of it came with that self-play. And, and you know, hopefully that's how people do come into their sexuality, that they are touching themselves first in a consensual and, you know, private way, that they have a space where they feel like they can explore their body for exploration's sake, right? And so, you know, for me, and you share if you feel comfortable, but I feel like you probably will because you're a sex educator. But like, I remember reading about it in Seventeen magazine, and I was like, "What is this? A se- like masturbation? Like touching my vagina? What does that mean?" So then I remember like 
I was on a trip with my family somewhere and I'm pretty sure they had me like in a living room or something. And it was like at night and I was like, let me just try to put my hand down there. Let me just see what it feels like. And I, it's so crazy to think there was a time in my life when I never thought to purposely put my hands on my lady bits, you know, on my intimate parts. And to, and I just distinctly remember it. And maybe you distinctly remember yours or you don't, but I just remember realizing like, oh my God, that feels so good. And I just want to do it a lot. (laughs) Yeah. I don't remember the exact first time. I I remember discovering that it felt good. (laughs) I don't remember how long it took me to realize, oh, this felt really good. But I remember discovering it felt really good and then wanting to do it again and again and again. And I don't think I really recognized what I was doing at the time. Mm -hmm. So even though I had read a lot of, the thing is, it's funny, what I had read and what I had learned about never mention masturbation. I read a lot of clinical books. I would go to the library and it's whatever they had in the adult section that I can get my hands on is what I found. And a lot of it was very clinically based and masturbation for whatever reason, self-pleasure never came up. So when I discovered it, it was purely on my own. I didn't know that. You're like, am I a genius? Am I Christopher Columbus here? Hi, everyone. You can touch yourself. It's amazing. (laughs) And it's incredible. Oh my God. I love it. I mean, you should have saw how I felt when I discovered I can use like the faucet or the the shower. When I rode a horse for the first time, I was like, I'm never getting off this horse. (laughs) Hell no. (laughs) Oh my God. Those shower heads that you can pull down and it has like vibrating different speeds and different like all mist and like, (laughs) yeah. Just straight, like, just straight stream (laughs) right on the clitoris. Oh, my God. I thought I discovered, like, the best thing. Dude, your parents were like, why is the water bill so high? (laughs) Rashida, what are you doing in the shower? What are you doing in there? Excuse me. I understood why I was taking such long showers. (laughs) That's okay. Oh, my gosh. Can we? We know now, but. (laughs) Okay, so there's a couple things I want to ask you. First of all. I just imagining a, a little Rashida in the library, like on communal tables, like what? Reading academic articles about penises and vaginas and uterus. Like, yes. who are you? That's literally who I was. I, I used it's to. who you still I are. spend so much time at the library as a young girl. Like, I really wasn't a child who, I didn't play, like, I'm much more playful now as an adult. I think because as a young girl, I just st- had my head in the books. Yeah. All I wanted to do was read. I would spend hours reading, reading novels, reading just anything I could find interesting, I read. That's Whereas so now, cool. as a, I'm a much older, I love to play now. Now I'm finding all the fun things to do. Yeah. <laughs> but at that time, I really was just, I wanted to soak up as much as I can soak up because I had questions and I had, I didn't have anyone to ask them. And so I figured, well, I better go digging. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's important to talk about because I know, you know, reading a little bit about you, you have an interesting background with, you know, your cultural identities and the way that your parents didn't talk about that with you. And so if you could kind of talk about, you know, now as an adult looking back and knowing your parents and understanding more about your culture, like, was it something about maybe a religious or racial background that that caused that or a cultural background because your family are from different parts of the world? 
I think so. So my mother is from Jamaica and my dad is from Nigeria. And culturally speaking, both countries don't really have a very open sort of viewpoint or perspective on sex and sexuality to begin with. So there was that stigma. Um, plus, my father is Islamic and my mother is Christian. Oh, so okay. I also had the added levels of two very big religions who don't also have very positive <laughs> um, perspectives on sex and sexuality or even your body for that much. And especially, I think, I'm going to be more specific, the female body, even more specific. Mm-hmm. And so those definitely played a big role in the fact that it just wasn't a part of normal conversation. It just wasn't something. And perhaps if I was a young boy, because now knowing what I know and having conversations with family members and women are socialized a lot differently in both the Jamaican and Nigerian cultures when it comes to sexuality than we are if we were a boy. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's very different because we're very we're taught to be very modest. Um, you know, there's a lot of I mean, shame, for the lack of a better word, there's a lot of shame in terms of keeping ourselves pure and keeping ourselves, you know, sort of kept aside, whereas that same reverence isn't given towards young boys and young men. And so I think that really played a role in how I decided to look at my own sexuality growing up because it wasn't at all a conversation like what my parents and I have now have great conversations about it, but that's because I'm an adult and because of what I do, mm-hmm. you know, probably I'm, I would venture to say, had I not been doing what I'm doing today, I would not have had conversations with my parents about sexuality up till now. There's I think that in my mind. that's so interesting. Cause I work, so I work with survivors of sexual violence. And so, you know, when, when my family asked me like, how's work, <laughs> you know, what do you, I can't tell them anything about the students that I work with or the faculty or staff that I work with, but you know, the fact that I even do this work again, opens the door for people to feel like to share either, you know, me too, um, mm-hmm. I've experienced this, you know, now that you're ready to hear it, it's almost like now that, you know, mm-hmm. you know, and I just wish that like, it didn't have to be that way. Like you and I have these careers that do explore all facets of sexuality, both the, uh, pleasurable, consensual, amazing side of it. And I'm sure the work that you do also intersects with the trauma and the shame that often comes with it. And it is, I just wish that you didn't have to be working in this area for people to feel like, oh, I can talk to you about it now. Like the fact that you work in this area, I would, you know, I want to still talk about kind of your early childhood upbringing, you know, Yeah, I think it's important to know, you know, especially with the intersection of culture and religion, just how you grappled with those, because I think there's still adults that were raised in those types of environments that are still grappling, you know, with feeling oppressed or repressed. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think what I would say at the time, I don't think I really recognized the gravity of having the two different cultures and the two different religions in my household to I, to the extent that I do now. Um, but I will say, I feel that it has lent me the actually a blessing of growing up in a household that maybe didn't allow me to have any 
room to talk about these types of things, it actually has given me the ability to have much more compassion to mm. others who who ha- who are struggling with this or who are dealing with um, not really trying, not really understanding how they fit in or how they can navigate through whatever cultural or religious sort of institutions are kind of keeping them in their own, in that one way. And I think what's important is that I... At the time growing up as a young girl, really just wanted to seek information. And then what I decided to do was just take what information was worth was worthy to me. So that is what really has helped me navigate this entire situation and really just sifting through the information because I recognize that the information that maybe I received from my cultural, from my Jamaican background, from my Nigerian background, even from going to church and going to the mosque at times, I went to all of those things. I realized that not all that information felt right to me, Rashida. <laughs> and so that was what really became my distinctions, separating what works and what doesn't. <laughs> and then leaving literally what doesn't with those who gave it to me. So I kind of equated as, the the gifts <laughs> that my parents gave me from their own cultural shame from growing up of not speaking about it i gave that gift back because i don't want to keep it <laughs> i think i i know we're both giggling about that but i think that it, as as simple as that sounds it's so incredibly powerful because recognizing you even have the power to give back lessons that your family taught you to just say, you know what, this isn't serving me for the life that I want to live. You can have that back. You know, thank you. My gift receipts in the bag. Like (laughs) yes, that to someone listening could be incredibly revolutionary that they can give the beliefs and the thoughts that were given to them back. And that they can create new thoughts and new beliefs. Right. And that's what you did. And I think it sounds like you did that in large part from all the research that you did to say, look at all of the diversity and complexity of this topic. Mm-hmm. There is not one way to do this. No, no, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And I was taught that there was only one way initially. And so with then presented with all this new information, I guess I was confronted with the option to change my mind and I decided to change my mind. I don't have to follow what I've been told is to be true now that I have supporting evidence that shows me otherwise. And I think Mm -hmm. that was the biggest thing. Um, The biggest piece I would say, if someone is still struggling with trying to navigate, you know, who they are outside of the identity that they, you know, they've been given is to educate themselves like that. I think that would, that was what worked for me. And that is what I think will work for most because when you know more information, then you're able to make much better decisions for yourself and for others, opposed to working on sort of a limited view of things because you don't have a whole full range of information at your disposal. Yeah. And I think that's a huge reason for this podcast existing is to just get to a larger audience outside of the college that I work at, that there are other ways of living. There are other narratives create your own look at the smorgasbord of life look at this buffet i know buffets are not a thing during the pandemic but look (laughs) at the. you can literally have one piece of you know if you went to a salad bar one piece of this one piece that 
five pieces of olives. For me, I'd slather it in a bunch of ranch dressing and put a bunch of sunflower seeds on it because that is delicious. But you can choose. You can make your sexual salad however you want. Yes, I love that. Make your sexual salad. (laughs) I might just be hungry. I don't know. That's pretty common with me. I love love snacks. (laughs) Um, So, I mean, what age was that that you felt like that transformation happened? Because, Like, were you still living in your household? Oh, yes, absolutely. I was, yeah, very much. I would say that happened, that was more in my teens. Mm -hmm. So that was, and I was in my rebellion. That was rebellious, Rashida, (laughs) stage. And so it was, no, I'm going to do what I want to do because I know differently Mm -hmm. (laughs) now. And so that's what kind of sparked that decision was to just sort of blaze my own way because I didn't like, or I wouldn't say that, I I didn't feel comfortable in, I will say, the role that I felt I needed to portray. And I was like, this doesn't fit me, but I don't know what does fit me, but this doesn't. So I'm just going to figure it out. And so that was kind of how my journey progressed into, especially even moving into now taking this professionally. It was more in my teenage years when I realized, okay, no, this is something that I really want to pursue. It's no, it's more than just, I like to read about this. This is mm-hmm. way more. This is deeper. This is bigger. This is consuming <laughs> my life. I think I really want to pursue this more. And then that's when I started to really look at avenues of how can I, how can I make this an actual life for myself, if that's even possible. I, I have so many questions. I mean, like as a teenager, usually you go into like in high school, I know here in the States anyway, um, you go into classes that are like, you know, here's the next step after high school, you have all these choices. And, you know, a lot of people, unless they see it in their family or their immediate community, um, they'll tend to gravitate towards those like popular careers, doctor, yes. lawyer, lawyer, business owner, yeah. you know, veterinarian, you know, you're like, I want to be a sex coach. Well, or maybe not quite there. Yeah, I wasn't quite a sex coach. I think initially it was, I wanted to be a gynecologist. That's oh, okay. what I wanted to do. That was how the journey started. Gynecology, because I thought that's the way I wanted to go. And then I realized, no, that doctor. is not all the See, <laughs> you, went do- be, you went doctor. You went route. doctor first. So I was just the same. <laughs> <laughs> Fell right into the trap. <laughs> But I got myself out, thankfully. But So I wanted to be a gynecologist. And I held on to that vision for quite some time. And it wasn't until um, I actually took like a, just like a, like a, like a, a class somewhere. Like they offered a class at a community center that I went to and I met the instructor there and, and the instructor happened to mention that there is sex therapy and mm-hmm. there was sex researchers and all that. And I was like, wait a minute, where do you go to do this? Mm-hmm. <laughs> to do this. And then he kind of gave me the tools because at the time, none of the major universities here in Canada, when I was go- before, prior to that, had any courses or any faculties that dealt with sexuality. And so I was like, well, I have to go to the U.S. then. That will be my, oh. my, my route will have to be going to the U.S. For, for my you know, formal education. So I already knew. So going to high school, I was like, well, this is going to be the trajectory because I got to take my SATs, whatever those are at the time. <laughs> Gosh. 
You're like, I'm going to go study abroad in the exotic country of the United States. I'm going to go to Nebraska, South Dakota. Oh, my God, (laughs) Illinois. (laughs) So that was my initial thoughts of how my life trajectory was going to go. That is not at all how it went, but (laughs) that is definitely how I thought my 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 path, path, sorry, to sexual you know, education and sexual therapy and all that was going to take, but that is not at all <laughs> how it went down. Not at all. So how did it go down? Well, what I was the path? <laughs> I ended up going to a university here in Canada. Okay. But, I mean, because by the time I actually went to university, then they did have faculty stuff at that time to do with sexuality. <laughs> You're literally so young. Like, how know, is right? it that like in the 2000s, they were like, you know what, people, let's... <laughs> Canada's ready for sex. Yeah, I think we got ready around 99 or so. So <laughs> I think now, you know, by that time, we had, um, they had a, a minor. So the university I went to had a minor program okay. that I could add to my BA. So that was my workaround <laughs> from not taking the uh, the SATs, which looked, looked very daunting. Yeah, they <laughs> suck. Oh, the US so blows. <laughs> um, what was your major? A psychology. Okay, psychology. Okay, so that makes yes. sense. You know, very much in line um, with the work that you do now. Yeah. Um, and what do you remember about the sexuality minor? What I do remember the most is the space to speak about sexuality in a way that I had not yet, I had not experienced. That for me is what I took away the most from. Go, because it was just, I had never really been in a, in a room full of people who just came to learn and talk about sex too. Like I'm also here, but everyone else in my immediate world did not feel and think like I did. Mm-hmm. And so it was so refreshing and just really just empowering, to be honest, mm-hmm. that I could go to a space, I can go to these classes that people are really interested in what I'm interested in as well. And don't look at me as like, <laughs> that you know what a deviant right there right like, oftentimes right. if you talk about sex people are like tmi you know yeah. like too much information or i can't uh, i feel like i'm dating myself with that acronym but um you know like they're just like oh what a weirdo what a deviant right right and to right. finally be in a space where you know that that vibe isn't there. I think you hit the nail on the head. And I think what gets me so interested about this topic is the empowerment piece, right? It's like, it's not that you or I, well, I can't speak for you. Maybe you like having sex all the time. I'm not like a, yeah, good for you, girlfriend. (laughs) I don't have like a particularly high sex drive, but what I love about sex and what I loved when I was going into like the phase in my life where I was starting to have it more regularly Mm. was that for so long, I had felt like this was an area that was taboo. And this was an area that was full of shame. And, but when I had sex and when I was desired and when I, when I had this amazing, physically amazing experience, I left that experience most times feeling like I'm on top of the world. Mm. Look at this, look at this moment that me and this other person had where it was just, it was exciting. It was pleasure filled. It was new. 
it was, it was empowering. It made Mm -hmm. me feel like I walked a little bit taller. You know, they talk about like the walk of shame. And I remember having sex with this guy in college and walking back to my dorm room and I, and it was like the next morning, you know, like I spent the night. Yeah, yeah. So I was Typical not there. I really like the walk of shame. Yeah. <laughs> we would call it the walk of shame, but I held my head high as I literally walked next to like a freeway. I was like, oh my God, what a part of me was like, I should not have taken this path. Like I should have gone through campus, but it was faster to go like by the road. <laughs> and I wasn't even dressed all like, you know, like short skirt and whatever. But I just remember walking and feeling like, yeah. I fucking did that, you know, like, (laughs) and so I think that that's so awesome to feel that way instead of the other way of feeling. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, because I didn't really have, as I said, there wasn't really other spaces in my life where that openness was allowed or accepted. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, because even in my romantic relationships as as a young girl, as a teenager, a young adult, again, I was very sexually closed off in the area but i could be myself in class i can i can talk about all the things and i can you know um, show interest in all the things in class (laughs) but in the rest of my world not so much because it just didn't seem it didn't feel that it would have been well received well and if it's anything but heterosexual missionary style sex forget about it yeah no one wants to talk about anal with you what? No. No one wants to talk no. about orgies. No. And it's there's like that's okay if you want that. Yes. As long as it's consensual, folks. Like live like, your kinkiest best. Folks. Exactly. Yeah. I mean and but it's it's so wonderful that your college gave you that. Yeah. You know, yeah. and it's so wonderful for us to be on a podcast, you in Toronto, me in Hawaii, having these conversations for whoever ends up tuning into this. And it's like, you know what? They're freaking right. Like, why am I feeling this sense of shame? Why don't I try and find, you know, either friends or organizations or, you know, groups that I can ask these questions and not feel judged. Yeah. Yeah. That's the biggest piece is the not the not feeling judged is the place because you can ask the questions, but it depends on who you ask the questions to. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's the thing I think. And that's um, one of the pieces If we're you know, even digging into a little bit of like my journey, one of the pieces of me learning, especially now who I am is I asked questions, but was, was given very negative feedback on the questions that I asked, which is why I think I just started to, I'll, I'll teach myself. Do you remember what some of those messages were? Oh, you know, you want to know too much, you know, um, you think you're too smart. Oh, I got that one a lot. (laughs) You think you're so smart. Yes, I do actually. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Yet, yet another revolutionary quote from Miss Rashida Ahmed. Yes, I'm fucking smart. Okay. I'm a young woman and I'm smart. Yeah, get like, over it. Thank you. <laughs> answer my question. You don't have to fluff around. You could just you don't answer have to it. Fluff around. Or if you don't know the answer, you can just tell me that too. <laughs> but you know, it was those kinds of messages I think um, really impacted my journey, my own sexual journey, like my personal sexual journey, um, because I really didn't want to speak up too much in in that area. But I was loud, and you know, I was open where I could be open. So for example, in classes that I took, 
in any sort of organization that I, I went to. Yes, I was totally myself, but in other areas of my life, I was very muted. Yeah. So we haven't talked about you having sex for the first time. Oh, yes. Oh, gosh. Was it good? Was it bad? No, it was horrible. It was was horrible. You know what? I'll say this. It was horrible because it was painful. Yeah. And what I know now for it to be painful because I wasn't ready. Like, I really shouldn't. Now, looking back. Yeah. No fault to the person. No fault to the guy. Like, it's just I wasn't turned on. I just, you know, I I didn't know what I was doing. I really just wanted to get it over with. I was just like, I've been reading about this thing for way too long (laughs) and I just want to check it off the box and get it over with so I can move on. And so I can know what everyone else is talking about. Now I wanted to be, I wanted it to be a lived experience at that point. Mm -hmm. Um, And it really wasn't that great. And I didn't do it again for almost a year after that because Mm -hmm. I was so like, Oh no, if that was just one time. It was one time and I was like, yeah, no, I'm good. I don't want to do that again. It was too painful. Forget it. <laughs> I don't know why everyone's talking about it. So great. That's a lie. Now I know the truth. <laughs> but yeah. At that yeah. Time, God, that must have been so disheartening. You're like, I've spent literally my entire adolescence like obsessed. This is, was it in your, was it in high school or was it in college? It was actually. <laughs> I was, was it in middle school? girlfriend oh my gosh you were really I was 14 (laughs) I was 14 your body's like I'm not even a woman yet can I menstruate (laughs) first right so as I said it really was something that I had no business (laughs) really getting myself into but I think because I had done so much research (laughs) I was like I am brown I'm tired of not knowing. Like, I just kind of want to know. And then once I found out, I was like, well, I'm okay. (laughs) I don't need to know anything more at this point. I'm good. (laughs) I think it's, it's interesting. Thank you so much for sharing, by the way. I, Mm -hmm. you know, I think it's important to share that, you know, the research that I've done shows that a lot of women just want to get it over with. I know I was like that. Like, I was just like, I, I mean, I'm, I'm turned, I was maybe not turned on in that moment. I'm sure somewhat turned on, but more so just curious, you know, like this is so taboo. And, you know, I had a boyfriend or a guy that I was seeing and I was like, let me just, let's just do this. It wasn't like at all romantic. It wasn't, it was, I mean, I'm pretty sure his roommate was like sleeping in the bunk bed next to us. And so it was like, I couldn't be express my full self, but I had no idea how to. And so I think there's this, you know, it's interesting what we're told about virginity, that you lose your virginity, which is such bullshit. I don't even know that you give your virginity. It just is what it is. You have sex for the first time. time. That's it. (laughs) You just have sex for the first time, but we build it up to be this thing. And, you know, my hope I'm 34. So like, my hope is that the kids these days are like, I, I, I spend ample time on the TikToks and I see (laughs) that they're quite woke and that they're heading in the right direction, or at least that's my algorithm tells me that. (laughs) Um, Maybe it's just appeasing me, but um, you know, it is, it's so interesting knowing that like, sure, we messed around with fire hose, you know, shower heads and stuff. (laughs) And sure, we, you know, may have masturbated ourselves. But until you have that first time, it's like, you really have no idea. And you still don't. And honestly, like, 
you still have the opportunity to have more exciting adventures in sex. Even if you've been with the same partner, like I've been with my husband for years and we're still mm-hmm. finding ways to like try new things and Absolutely. keep it exciting. You know, yeah. it, it can yeah. be an adventure. Yeah. And that's the way I like to look at sex now. And I mm-hmm. think because so much of my life, I thought it was going to be an adventure. And then when mm-hmm. I finally did it, it was very adventureless. And I was like, mm-hmm. well, what's going on here? There's, there's a disconnect between what I've been reading about, because I was also a girl who lived in romance novels. So mm-hmm. there's that aspect of it. So I was, I was like, well, what is happening? There's a disconnect from what I envisioned it to be mm-hmm. to what my reality is actually, you know, showing me. And so it was in that disconnect that I've been like, okay, let me figure that out. Well, what is going on? Like what, what happened here that it's, I'm not getting what I thought I was supposed to get. For me, the key was I realized I didn't prioritize my own pleasure at the time, Mm -hmm. but learning through that and understanding that, yeah, it's really important for you to just explore and have sex to be something to be enjoyed and to have fun. And there's really no right way. There's no real wrong way. It's just have like, have the sex that you like, like that's kind of the way I like to look at it. And I think that if more people sort of considered sex in that way, we'd be a lot more happier because it's, there really is no rules to how this goes. Yeah. I think I've, I've, worked mostly in the college realm. So that's 18. So you're like legally an adult onward, right? So we have a lot more freedom to talk about sex and to talk about consent and sexual violence and the whole spectrum of experiences that one may have across the lifespan. It's tough, you know, and I I haven't really dived into the research or the practice around comprehensive sexual education for young people. But as your story shows and as data shows, kids have sex. They experiment with themselves, with one another. And, you know, obviously there's rules around this. Obviously there's laws around it to protect children, but they are still going to do it. So why are we not equipping them? Why are we not accepting the reality, accepting the data that's been around for decades? They're going to have sex. So why don't we just tell them things like, if you are going to engage, here's the ways to do it that are the most likely to protect your health, Mm -hmm. but most importantly, protect your emotional health, you know, and here's what tends to make sex really good for people. Things like maybe try it on yourself first in a safe environment. Here's what a sex toy looks like. You can use it. You cannot use it. Maybe look at your body parts in the mirror, you know, like there's just so much work to be done with our young folks. Absolutely. Absolutely. I 100% agree with you on that. I think that's, um, and that, that for the most part is what fuels me is the fact that that information wasn't prevalent. I know it's becoming much more available and accessible now, but at the time it wasn't prevalent. And so it's, it is what spurred me to find out that is literally it. I had no way to get those information. So I wanted to learn it. So I was the girl who would tell her friends to get the mirror because I got the mirror and I was like, Oh, what is that? Cool. You should look over there too. Have you looked? You know, it was, I was that young person who was just like, oh, how come no one told me that I should do this? Mm -hmm. This is probably valuable information. So I think it is important for us to equip our young, our young people because yeah, the reality is they are having sex 
they are engaging in sexual activity. They are doing sexual touch. They are, they are. And it's just, instead of us denying it, Mm -hmm. when we give them the information, they'll make better decisions. I know that for sure. There's no doubt in my mind. Yeah. So you waited a year until you were like 16. And then, yeah. and then the, the world <laughs> opened up. Guys, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> well, at that point, I had a I had a boyfriend, and so I was doing it in that way. And so I, and then that experience allowed me to learn about it in a different way. Now it was much more of a pleasurable experience. At that point, it wasn't so. I'm just doing this because I want to figure this out. It was a much different experience, but I think those experiences definitely lended to. Um, who I am now, I'm still very much, I want to explore a person. I want to figure it out. I want to learn all the new things. And I, you, I really go into every sexual experience as this is the first time, mm-hmm. even if you've been with this person a million times, it's still the first time you're waiting with them to that day on that Thursday. So it's the first time. <laughs> so let's That's, kind of go into that. Let it, Also a third nugget of revolution. <laughs> I've literally never thought that I'm like, well, here we go again, Leo. <laughs> It's a Thursday. Let's get this done. This particular day of the year, we've never done it before. It's the first time. Let's go. Okay. (laughs) Okay. I like to look at it. I love that. Realistically, (laughs) how do you get into that frame of mind? I mean, because I'm sure you work with folks or have worked with folks that are in long-term relationships, you know, that are like, I know every mole, every crevice, every hair patch, every smell, every, all the things. Yes. (laughs) There is no more discovery here. There's no more discovery. I think the way that I get into that frame of mind is by keeping it playful. Mm. So, because then that lends to a little of spontaneity that lends to a little like I don't know what's going to happen the adventure part and so if if, if you're keeping it playful then it it does allow you to go into it with a mind mindset or mind frame of I don't know what you're gonna like I don't know what you're gonna enjoy today like I don't know maybe you might like when I do you know this particular move in this way but today let me just switch it up just a little bit and see what happens and go from Mm -hmm. there. You may hate it. Great. Mm -hmm. Or you may love it. So I think it's just, if you really inject a little bit of silliness into it, like if you embarrassed, if you're embarrassed, that's okay. If you do something that you didn't expect to do and you think you look silly, that's okay too. Like I really think it's sometimes dropping this idea that we know everything because we don't, (laughs) even if you know every mole and every crevice, the fact is you don't know everything. So dropping that and allowing yourself to kind of just, Hey, let's see what we find today. Let's see what's, let's see. We may find nothing. That's also okay too. I think there's nothing. Yeah. There's tools too, to help that conversation. Right. Cause I mean, other than meeting with someone like yourself, there's plenty of stuff on the internet. I haven't gotten these yet, but I've been seeing them lately. Um, like little cards, like boxes of cards that you could probably either pull out like intimate questions or conversation starters. Cause I think intimacy is so much more right. Than just the way our bodies interact with each other, especially for women. When you look at the, you know, data and research, it takes a little more to like get us ready to go in the mood. Like it amazes me the audacity of having a dick. Like I wish I had for one minute 
can experience what having a dick is like because me too just for one minute because i really love being a woman i love the multiple orgasms like they just don't have that we'll never have that and so that's the one thing my husband was like you guys have to have one thing and so you guys get to have multiple (laughs) orgasms you have periods you birth our children you you know you you are the receiver and i'm talking heterosexual relationship right like i am in a heterosexual relationship but like you have to have one thing so your one thing gets to be uh you get a clitoris that's got (laughs) literally the only organ function is for pleasure and therefore you have multiple orgasms but like the audacity of having a dick to just be like i can my husband's I told him I wasn't going to talk too much about him. He always wants to make sure that I get off at least once, generally multiple times, right? He is a very generous lover mm-hmm. and I love that about him, yeah. yes. but he also thinks he is a gem. He also thinks his dick can literally cure anything. Am I sad? <laughs> he gets hard. Am I mad? You know, what's here. A dick. Yeah. <laughs> literally never approached life as like, you know, what can solve this? My freaking pussy, <laughs> you know, maybe we need to adopt that audacity. I maybe that's what, maybe that's the piece that we're missing. P- pussy audacity. <laughs> pussy audacity. I mean, why not? <laughs> that's I mean, big dick energy. We can, have, you know, <laughs> I, I, strong pussy audacity. I don't know. <laughs> strong pussy audacity spa. There we go. <laughs> I just, I love, I love that about him so much. It makes me laugh and also makes me furious at the same time sometimes. But it, the crazy thing is his dick generally does make me feel better. So I'm like, is he wrong? No. <laughs> no. No. But do I have to bat him away constantly? I'm like, it is 4.30 in the morning, sir. Please roll the other way. I would like my last hour and a half of sleep. Thank you. No. (laughs) But see, but that's, even in that, that's where we get to explore and have fun, right? Who knows what 4.30 in the morning uh, Sarah's like? Who knows? (laughs) Well... Who who did you become at 4.30 in the morning? I am actually, that is like my peak sexual energy is immediately upon waking up. Yes, my breath is probably not where it should be. But just flip me over. It's fine. You know, because my stomach is empty. I had a full night of sleep. So I'm energized. I wake up energized. (laughs) Um, You know, the calendar for my work hasn't hit yet. I've had no one asking me for anything. No child is awake yet. So like, it's actually a beautiful time to have sex. <laughs> there you go. 4.30 in the morning, Sarah is, is raring to go. <laughs> but um, no, so anyway, uh, as of five minutes ago, I was talking about tools that people could use. But something that we used recently was like a, oh, I'm going to have to post it in the show notes. But it was like a survey of you take it and your partner takes it and it goes through a lot of different sexual situations you know everything from like where you know do you want to have multiple partners do you are you comfortable uh with anal sex either receiving or giving uh are you comfortable with and so it it, I'm trying to think what some of the other ones were like oral sex, giving and receiving, um, nipple play, um, gosh, using food in the bedroom, which for me was like 
absolutely not. We live in Hawaii. There's cockroaches and there's <laughs> ants. Hell yeah, no. Like, no. No, thank you. Yeah. Get, get that whipped cream out of here. Okay. Yeah. Even um, here in Toronto. No, thanks. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a lot. I don't need jams or jellies put on me. It's very sticky. No, thank you. So like, that was a really cool exercise for us to do. And, you know, it was free online. We, it was a PDF. So I'm really going to have to link it now because it was, it opened the, just like your class did it opened the opportunity. And granted, we were already at a place where we were comfortable talking about sex. We were comfortable with one another to have that type of discussion. But it took, I mean, that was like this past year, took a pandemic being like, okay, how do we mix this up? Cause like we can't travel anywhere. So we got to spice up our life somewhere else. But like, but it was amazing. I mean, it led us to these really in-depth conversations about fantasies that we never had before. You know, and like I discovered a app called Dipsy. That's yes, new with to the me. Erotic stories. Ero- I, I mean, that's like right up yeah. your alley because you yeah, love the love erotica. That. Yeah, absolutely love Dipsy. I think things like that, the intimacy cards that you were talking about, they have like sex games that you can purchase like mm-hmm. that are similar to that. I always say to people, go into like a, a, a store or even browse online nowadays if you want to browse online and use that to kind of spark a little bit of conversation. Like what, what do you find interesting or, or what do you think about this particular thing? Or have you tried a toy before? Like even just having that start the conversation is mm-hmm. great. Like I love that the cards helped to sort of, develop a conversation between you and your husband that necessarily wasn't there. And now look what you're experiencing now. So that's the beauty of it. And I think that's where the intimacy is really um, birthed when we start having these kinds of conversations. To me, intimacy is what happens between our souls, essentially. Like that is, it's more than just a body. Mm -hmm. It's really, what are we connecting? It's the connection that we're experiencing. That's intimacy. And so I think it's developed in all these different areas and different ways that we can learn about things. Taking classes together with your person is fun. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we did take like a salsa dancing class together. What I learned that I have a lot of issues with power because they were like, they were very like gendered, like the man leads and the woman follows. And I was like, yes. I am a 21st (laughs) century woman and apparently have a really hard time with not letting him lead. And so that was a very humbling experience, but it certainly like was something we looked forward to, you know? And again, did it always lead to us having sex? No, but we became closer because of it. And that closeness and that trust is the basis and foundation for intimacy with which, you know, your love in the bedroom, if that's important to you grows. So, I mean, when you're working with clients and folks that like, are so far away from that space. Mm-hmm. What are some concrete steps or homework assignments or things that they can do to start moving from a place of, you know, we argue all the time. I, I'm not attracted to them. I am so annoyed by them. I mean, how do you help someone in that space? My approach is always at first to go individually. And so my approach is always to, okay, well, how are you individually feeling? How are you, what are you individually experiencing right now? Outside of what you think so-and-so is feeling or, or what's going on with the other person, but individually, what are you, what are you experiencing? What's happening for you? What are you feeling? What do you need? What do you want? All of those things I go into at first. And then it's once we've deciphered, okay, truly, 
what we want and what we need individually. Now I bring it to the table as a collective, because I think it's hard. Sometimes we get into this spiral of, especially of, we're always arguing or we're so disconnected because we're trying to communicate on two very different wavelengths a lot of the times. And so it's, well, what wavelength are we on first? So that's the question. It's let's figure out where are we first? And then how do we find some middle ground? So I might suggest clients to individually do maybe a self-pleasuring activity individually. Like I'll say, I want you to just self-pleasure for the next, I don't know, three, four days. However, you know, whenever you feel good and ready to do so, just go ahead and self-pleasure. What do you find? What do you enjoy? What do you like? How do you want to be touched? And then we're going to come together and now we're going to communicate what you found to your partner. And it's the, the pressure of trying to tell your partner while they're in the middle of the, you know, while you're actually engaging in sexual activity. It can be quite difficult to say, oh, I don't like that or I prefer when you touch me here. It it can be a little bit daunting, especially if we're not even communicating that well to begin with. So it's okay. Now that we've had our findings, I like to kind of, if we take away some of the romance of the sex, it's a little easier to communicate it. We can always inject the romance back, Mm -hmm. but if we take it away, then our feelings are not necessarily, uh, our feelings, I will say our feelings are necessarily running the show. And then we can come to it objectively. I like to be touched this way. I really enjoyed, you know, to be pleasured in this this particular way. Or I liked it when, you know, um, I felt a touch on my neck or my ear or whatever the case is. Then you can communicate that to your partner in a way that is, it, it becomes factual. Then it takes away the, the personal, you know, because sometimes partners will feel rejected. They can feel like, um, depending on their own shame and trauma narratives that they are walking into the relationship with they will have different stories about what you what what the other partner is experiencing so Mm -hmm. if we take it away from what you're doing to me and what you're not doing to me and just strip it to this is what i like Mm -hmm. then it's easier for me to communicate what i like opposed to telling you i don't want you to do x it's more so i like this and then you tell me what you like and then how do we make that work how do we make what you like and what I like work for the two of us? And so, yeah, I would definitely tell clients to that's self-pleasure on our own for a while. Mm-hmm. I want to see, discover yourself, play with yourself, see what you like. What do you mm-hmm. enjoy? And then we come to the table and try to find a middle ground. So self-pleasure, it sounds like, cause you're talking about touch, you know, like firm, soft, you know, parts of your body that you like touch. So when you say self-pleasure, it's not just, let's just focus on our intimate body parts. It's let's focus on touching all of our body. You know, do do you like your hair grab? Do you like to be, you know, do you like a gentle, soft stroking of the skin in this area? Do you like the way that, you know, certain fabrics feel on your body? So it's more so than just, you know, what strokes do you like in your in your nether regions in your <laughs> absolutely yeah I'm, it's more I'm a than big that proponent of my body is my entire instrument so yeah. i'd like to this is what i try to impart to my clients your body is your whole instrument we are not foc- focusing on just or localizing in one particular area or a few areas i'm looking at i want the whole body to be engaged so it's more so when i say self-pleasure it is whatever is pleasurable If it is good to you, then it is pleasure. That is the way that I look at it. And so do what feels good, report back, and then we can go from there. 
that's that's the only that's the way I like to sort of start it because it's very hard for us to give someone the roadmap to somewhere that I haven't been myself. Mm. I so keep telling people <laughs> I like the word self-pleasure as a yes. verb, like go self-pleasure instead of masturbate. Yes. It's, oh, it's cuter. Sure. It's cuter. Definitely. <laughs> definitely. definitely. And I, le- I think it leaves for more possibilities. When I say self-pleasure, it could be anything, right? I mean, it could be, it could be anything in, in this world that you consider pleasurable. I think that's what we should start to really look at that term as it's not necessarily just, you know, how I want to be touched in my lady bits. It's all of me. How does all of me want to be engaged? And you're like, I feel engaged in pleasure at the nail salon. <laughs> what does that say? But I mean, I, you know, jokingly, yes, but also I think self-care is very tied in with that. If you're stressed, if you're overworked, if you're touched out because you're a new mom, if you are, you know, if you're really struggling with feeling lethargic because maybe your diet's out of whack or your medication that you're taking for mental health concerns, like all of it is are pieces to the puzzle. And so it also makes you more cognizant and aware of taking stock of of you in all these different realms not just in your relationship yes absolutely absolutely i agree so with you had mentioned briefly about like that your partner might also be struggling with their own shame and their own trauma Mm -hmm. how do you start to bridge that gap so like a one piece is explore what you love and then you start to come and what what fills you with pleasure then it's okay, here's these two parties together. We're now like a little more aware, a little more awake. I think a lot of people have a really hard time sharing things that were traumatic to them, especially as it relates to their bodies. I know that for me, even being married for so long, it took me a really long time to share with my husband that in college I was sexually assaulted Mm -hmm. and it, and it, you know, I was fine in the bedroom, but like certain times it would come up and I'd just be like, he doesn't need to know. I don't need to bother him with that. You know, I don't want to burden him with that. And it finally took just being like, the reason that this shit on the news is making me freak out is because this was me. You know, I get to relive my trauma every time I hear this. So I need you to know that that's why I'm upset you know? And he's like, holy shit. Like, why didn't you tell me? And it's like, why does anyone not tell anyone? How do you, you know, that shame is so deep and there's so much self-blame, especially when it comes to sexual violence that Mm -hmm. I put myself in that situation, or I could have done something more to stop it. When in reality, it is something that happened to you, you know, and it's a lifetime sometimes of unlearning that. So how do you help people who either one partner or both partners have their own shame and their own traumas around sexuality to start to bridge that gap in understanding? Um, Really is teaching compassion first Mm -hmm. and foremost. I think it's really difficult for us to be understanding to someone else if I lack compassion. And so um, the way in which, again, going back into the individual ways of doing things. It's really, I help my clients to understand individually their own stories with shame and, and trauma and their pleasure. Like I'm, I, I really like to start with the individual first because then I can, 
my, my, my biggest piece is if I am compassionate towards myself, it is much easier for me to be compassionate to someone else. And so in teaching and in learning or unlearning, you know, some of the shame narratives or <clears throat> moving through the traumatic experiences that they, that you may have gone through or that my clients may have experienced in understanding that, <coughs> sorry, in understanding that it's, it's knowing that, okay, if I can come to terms and, and understand what I've experienced and knowing that this has happened to me, but it doesn't necessarily have to be my story. It could be a part of my story. Then that helps me to then lend more compassion to others when they're sharing it with me, their stories. And so I like to make a lot of connections. I'm a person who loves to, I don't know if you're, you know, I mean, you, I'm sure you know, like the brain maps, you know, when you think of a, a brain and then there are all the little stuff that are pointing off, you know, little points coming off from it. And that's how I like to make the connections around our shame and our trauma. And so I will take my two clients and say, okay, well, this is what has happened. You shared your story. You shared your story. Now we're going to connect it to how it shows up in your day-to-day lives. So you're seeing how the shame manifests because it doesn't make sense if you don't actually see how it's showing up in your life as well. Mm-hmm. And so then once we see how it's manifesting in our lives day to day, then I then this is how we can make the connection. Well, how do we bridge that? How do we make sense of this now? Because I don't like when I do X, Y and Z, but I realize that I do that because this happened to me, you know, when I was younger. And so it lends to just having more compassion to the other person as they're working through recognizing the behaviors that they now exhibit because of the shame and the Mm -hmm. trauma or that they've experienced. For example, as you're saying, seeing something on TV would get you so upset. That was triggering you, bringing you back to an experience that you you felt. I would take a client in that situation. I would simply say, okay, this is what's happening to this person. This is how it's being manifested in this way when they watch certain shows or when certain things are being shown to them. So then the other client would then have more compassion towards you because you now understand, oh, this is why she's irritated. This is why she's upset. How can I help her to feel more safe? How can I help her to feel that this isn't um, happening to her right now? You know, and how do I just be there? How do I just be present? How do I be present for this person in the moment that they're 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 experiencing whatever they're experiencing? So that's really how I help clients bridge that. Because the thing is, we'll never really be free of our shame and our trauma. It's a part mm-hmm. of our story. It's a part of the makeup of who we are. But I believe that we can have better tools to kind of move through them, make better decisions with them, and then show up without our shame making the decisions. We get to make the decisions, not the shame necessarily getting to make the decisions for our lives. I mean, we could just end there. <laughs> what? I'm like thinking to myself, I need to transcribe this immediately. Post that everywhere. We get to make the decisions, not our shame. I mean, that is just, it. yet again, Rashida, <laughs> just incredible. I, what ways does shame tend to show up you know, for women in particular, and I guess you could speak to men as well, but like mm-hmm. what, um, what ways do you feel like it most manifests or the common things that you see? Um, okay. It all depends really. I would say like, I'll say an example for, um, one of the ways that it does manifest a lot in, in women, especially women who are in heterosexual relationships is the denial of their own pleasure. 
that's a big way that shame sometimes manifests in those relationships or um, really having to deal with a lot of emotional labor in terms of uh, your, your partner's ego, uh, not necessarily speaking up or advocating for their pleasure. Those are ways that shame shows up because if you were always told to keep your legs closed and to be the good girl and girls don't like that, well, then how do I then know how to speak up with my partner to tell them that I want something? I, I don't know how. I haven't been given that language. Yet my partner expects something of me because they've been socialized in a very different way. And so that's one of the biggest ways that I find that shame sometimes shows up in especially heterosexual relationships is sometimes a female will not have the ability to advocate for herself or feel that she can't advocate for herself for whatever reason. So that's one of the biggest ways. And I think for sometimes on, on the other hand, for men, it's the shame of having to know it all, having mm. to know how to pleasure someone, having to just be perfect or be great every single time. And that's a lot. That's They weren't given the information either. <laughs> just as much as we didn't get sex education, neither did they. So yet we are expecting them to know how to please a female's body. And they weren't even given the map. They weren't even given any information whatsoever. So these are the ways I find that shame really is prevalent in, in especially heterosexual relationships. With, with regards to men, I think you're right. You know, and I think what's so interesting is that compassion piece about trying to think about it from the other person's perspective. Of course, the performance issues are going to be there if they are taught, you should just automatically know. When in reality, their hardware is way easier to navigate than ours. Yes. Half of it's inside of us. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, I just saw what a full clitoris is. And I was like, I'm sorry, what is this octopus looking thing? <laughs> I am, I am 34. Why am I just learning these things? You know, it was like when I, when I was starting to get pregnant or like starting to get pregnant when I was trying to get pregnant and purposely taking myself off of birth control mm -hmm. with the intention to have a child, which is a crazy experience, by the way. Um, I'd love to hear about that. <laughs> sure. Mine wasn't I, intentional. Yeah. <laughs> so Girl, I've been there too. That. We would, we should talk about that. Cause I think that's important too. Unintended pregnancies and, and how we, we work with that. But, um, what was I going to say? Oh, it was then that my gynecologist was like, well, you can track your cycle, your menstruation cycle by like the, um, by the, oh my gosh, what's it called? The, I want to say slime. <laughs> oh, discharge. Thank you. Yes. I had a feeling you were going to say that. <laughs> I was like, is that the word she's tripping on? But I don't want to say it yet. It just in case. Nope. <laughs> it was definitely discharge. Slime is better in some ways. When it becomes slimier, then you're like ovulating. Mm -hmm. And that's, I'm pretty sure how she described it. And again, like, why don't I know that? Why don't I know how to track my ovulation cycles? Why did I not know that you could only get pregnant in a couple, like a small window of time, it's you know, like three, four days. <laughs> you're taught that anytime a penis enters a vagina, even if it doesn't come, you are at risk for being pregnant, which is true, but also highly unlikely. 
statistically speaking, but yet you and I both had pregnancies. And I think I read this on your, um, on your site that you had also experienced abortion. I have experienced abortion. And I think that's another area that, um, is really important to talk about for sure. Really important. And also filled with a lot of shame. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, I myself experienced immense shame around that for years, (laughs) for years, because I knew it was, I was never ashamed of the decision. I knew I made the right decision. I was 16. I knew I made the right decision. There was no doubt in my mind about that. The shame came from other people's opinion of what um, abortion was. That's what it was. I myself was never concerned about the fact that I did one. It is what it is. I had to do it. I felt that I needed to do it and I don't regret it. But everyone else's reaction to it is what made me feel a lot of shame around it over, over the years. And then, I mean, now I'm, it is what it is, but I know I experienced quite a amount of shame around that because it's something that is, again, so taboo, but I think highly necessary. <laughs> Did you, because you were 16, have to go in with a parent? No, I had just made <laughs> the, the cut, I'll say. <laughs> I, I mean, I literally just turned 16. <laughs> If it was a few weeks prior, I would have had to bring my mother. <laughs> so when so, did you when did you tell them about your abortion? You know what? To be honest, my mom found out. Uh, she found out, I think, within a couple of days, because I think she suspects something was up and she, she searched my stuff. <laughs> she found, you know, the evidence. Like what I, was I had, the evidence? I had I think I had uh, some prescriptions that I like antibiotics that I had to take care of. So, you know what are you at 16 taking antibiotics for? Like, you know, Mm -hmm. what are you going to do? So once I was confronted with that, then I fessed up. Um, But, you know, and she was, yeah, she was upset. Like, you know, was angry, the hurt, all those things. And so it was more so everyone else's reaction to me making that step. I knew I made that decision and I, and I was quite confident. I took, I went by myself. Like I was like, no, I need to do this. I don't want this now. I have dreams of being a gynecologist for goodness sakes. I don't have time for this. You're like, I'm going to get some real world experience. Right. So I got things to do. (laughs) So did, were you able to take a pill for the abortion or did you have to do a surgical abortion? I did the surgical one. Yeah. Yeah. I did the surgical one. I did that. I went into the hospital to do it. And even that, I remember the experience, the doctor I had, (laughs) the doctor I had, he was an old Jamaican Chinese doctor. And I guess because he was like, he was so upset that I was 16 and I was pregnant. He was so angry with me. I don't know him. I never met him. <laughs> how did you know he was angry with you? Because he was like, how could you do this? And I was like, what? <laughs> and it was, he was, how could you do this? You know, you know, you, this, you're better than this. And you know, if you, and, and he reminded me, he, I remember this to this day. He said, you know, if it was only a couple of weeks ago, I wouldn't do this. And I would have to call your mother. And I was just like, Okay, thanks. You're like, well, I did this for my birthday. Okay, doctor. This is my present to myself. For making me feel even better about myself right now. I mean, Um, you're you're laughing about it now, but like at that time, were you, I mean, were you that kind of confident about no gosh? Because that's kind of as a 16-year-old, 
with a, a male doctor. Yeah, no. Just I, berating I was, you. Yeah, I was I was falling apart. But you think um, I recognize now I'm one of those people who I could be falling apart on the inside and you might not know <laughs> on the outside. And I Rashida's think because, currently losing it on this, <laughs> but you would never know. You no. would never know. <laughs> you know, I think it's more of during that time, especially that particular experience, because that was, I will say, was the first difficult experience that I had to do. I, I felt that I had to do on my own. And so because I... I mean, I went to the doctors, I went all to the appointments, I took myself, I took a taxi to, to the hospital, I took a taxi back home, I took care of, I mean, I was working, I had my little job at McDonald's, I could take care of myself. <laughs> so I thought. And I think that taught me to be incredibly self-reliant and incredibly like, I have to just look after this myself. Like, I can't let anyone know that I'm not doing well because I was also committed to keeping it a secret at one point. Mm -hmm. So I had to put on a facade thinking that everything was great because I was committed to keeping it a secret. My mom found out anyways, but even then with her finding out and her anger towards it, I still had to keep it a secret because it wasn't something that, you know, my family would be, would be accepting of at all. They found out anyways, here we go. But it's just, one of those experiences that I think led to me really being as self resilient because I was forced to sort of do it all by myself and deal with, you know, the shame from people who I don't even know, like the doctor and the nurse. Like I remember it to this day. I could see the office in my mind of him just being like, you know, you know, I can't do this for you if it was a couple of weeks ago. And I was like, okay, that's neither here nor there. Are you going to do it? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, are you going to do it or not? Because I need this to be done. And so it was, it's, it was interesting to see the, it's interesting to see the woman that I am now, but I think it's definitely because in those moments I was falling apart, but had to keep it together because I mean, yeah. I have school the next day for goodness sakes. <laughs> You, know what I mean? <laughs> you got school the next day. Did you, you know, go I have a shift? <laughs> did you go under general anesthesia for it? I did. You I did. did. Yeah. So you were put out. Put out completely. Yeah. Yeah. I remember waking up and having like the gauze around my my waist. And I was like, okay, is it done? <laughs> and the nurse was like, Well, don't you think so? Like she was so rude. And I was like, I just want to confirm so I can go home. <laughs> That's all. <laughs> Well, to all of us in the United States that hear how great Canada's healthcare is, how lucky you all are. It does come with a bit of judgment. A bit. A Just bit. a side of judgment. Hopefully, hopefully things have gotten better since then. Um, I mean, how did you, as your family found out, thanks mom for spreading that across the family, what helped you, you know, for those who might be in a similar situation, what helped you navigate those conversations mm. with no loved way. ones, people that might have different, because I grew up in a town that was mostly like Latter-day Saints, Mormon. Okay. I know, I know that my friends are like, you just murdered mm. a living soul. You are a murderer. That is, yeah. that is, that is, 
what I grew up believing about abortion. Mm -hmm. So when I got an abortion, I think I I told him, I mean, I was married at the time. It was a very different experience than yours. Like, and, and everyone's is going to be different, you know, but for me, I went to a Planned Parenthood. I was, I had just transferred schools from one college to another. My husband either was unemployed or just started working Um, because I was in between jobs, you know, I just, I didn't like re up my birth control. I think either it was either that, or like I had forgotten to take my pills, Mm. something happened and I got pregnant, but I did not know. It was like, I went to the the clinic on my college because I was a graduate student. I was 23 or 24. Mm. We had just gotten married like a year or so prior and my boobs had really hurt. And I was like, well, I have to go anyway to like re-up my birth control pills and stuff. And so I was like, oh, I'm just like really experiencing a lot of tenderness. And, um, and she's like, you know, I don't even remember them asking me for a pee sample. Like it just was not even a thought that this was right. that, yeah, not a thought at all. So when she came back and she like closed the door and it's so funny how these moments, like you'll never forget it, you know, like you never forget in a way it's almost, it is traumatic, you know, like for me, I, I will describe it as traumatic because mm-hmm. she shut the door so softly and she, she took my hands in her and she said, honey, and her Southern accent, cause I was in the South, uh, um, she's like, you're pregnant. And I was like, and I just started bawling. And it was like, when anyone's experienced a traumatic incident where it's like, you literally remember like what the leaves look like outside and like, it's seared in your brain. Absolutely. And I'm like, I cannot be pregnant. I can't. I just transferred from one master's program to another. I have two years of intensive schooling left. I cannot delay this any longer. Mm-hmm. I have to finish my degree. I have to finish because I can't be in a position where I don't have any money and I'm not able to care for this for a child. And I was I was just married. Like I knew eventually I wanted to have kids with my husband. You know, at least I thought so. But I was 24. Yeah. Uh, life was just beginning. I had, I had things I needed to accomplish both professionally and personally. And so in my mind, as I'm sobbing, blaming myself, you should have, should have been better about taking your birth control. Why didn't you get an IUD? Why did you rely on pills? This is your fault. This is your fault. Now you have to go get an abortion. This is your fault. And we were so I thought we were so careful, you know, like we're so careful. And so when Leo came home and we had to, I had to tell him, I, I like, couldn't even wait. Like he got in the door. I was like, babe, I'm, I'm pregnant. Like, and he was like, I'm sorry. Can I put my bag down? What? <laughs> and I was like, you to take your shoes off. Oh my gosh. I was, I was a mess. I was so sad that this, I was, you know, cause similar to like a wedding, you have in your mind what you think it's going to be because of all the fairy tales and the stories. You saw all the, the gender reveals and the pregnancy reveals. And that was less than back then. That was like way back in the day, maybe like 12 years ago. And I was so sad that this was it. Yeah. I was like, this is it. And so, but there was no doubt in my mind. That was the only decision. I mean, I think we talked about like possibly keeping the pregnancy and I'm like, what am I going to do? We live on campus. I work for housing because I go to school. If I have a baby, I can't go to school. So we're going to get kicked out of housing. I can't do this. So I like, as soon as I could main and you know, the woman who told me I was pregnant, I remember this about it. She said, 
She said, it's okay. People have babies all the time. Like her automatic assumption was I was going to keep this child. Yes. I was yeah. like, bitch, yeah. no. <laughs> no. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, no. Where's so I knew, so I couldn't even call the health center. Cause then I felt so much embarrassment about like, well, if this is how their staff acts, then I can't get information. So the only place to go was Planned Parenthood because I knew, I knew that they were for this exact purpose, this exact reason that they were the one people I could rely on to not do that to me, which was my experience. The unfortunate thing though, whether it was a budget thing or the way that they did it here in the States was I elected to have a a surgical procedure because I worried that if I had taken one pill there and then I was given the pills to take it home, that I wouldn't have the courage to do it. So I was like, I could be not pregnant today. Right. And so they did the ultrasound. They confirmed that there was, a, you know, an embryo in there. And, you know, I, I really wasn't that far along, but I mean, I was still pregnant mm-hmm. and they took me in the back and I went by myself because again, I didn't want to burden my husband with this. I wish, I mean, a part of me wishes I had, you know, I can't go back and change it, but I went there by myself and it was so incredibly painful. The whole, you know, how they, I want to explore this sometime, maybe with a gynecologist on here, but they always describe things for women's health as like, Oh, it's a slight pinch. You'll feel some cramping, some light cramping. No, this was an incredibly traumatic event for me. It was incredibly painful. It, I mean, I was crying so hard, squeezing this woman's hand, the nurse's hand so hard. She's like, you're going to be fine. It's almost over. It's almost over. But it felt like it lasted forever. And then it was over. And then they wheeled me into this little room where I sat with other people who had just gotten abortions. And all that they had on the little table were these little books that like other women wrote to other women like you did this for a reason you're going to be okay you know like these mementos of hope and I think that was the first time that I really like and I had been assaulted in college that was the first time that I I felt like such a deep sense of shame around my choices, around my sexuality, around everything. And so I, I hit it for like a long, long time. It was just between like Leo and I, mm-hmm. and I passed that on to him. Like he was ready to tell people, he was ready to tell his mom, you know, and share this, share this burden, share this, mm-hmm. you know, this, this life experience. Yeah. And I just couldn't. And still to this day, like, I I know I'm going to talk about it on the podcast and I'll have to like brief people. (laughs) Hey, FYI, once was pregnant, then I wasn't, you know, like it's, it's like, it's almost like a coming out. Like I have to have this like coming out party. party? I think it is too. I think it's like, thank you one for just sharing that because I think it's really important for people to understand just how, different experiences impact us and something as 
seeing those notes, how was that was so impactful for you? Like, yeah. I feel like now I'm like, goodness, that would have been an experience I would have wanted to experience instead of waking up being like, oh, is it finished? And then getting attitude and then, get you know, that sort of reaction was not at all the reaction that I would have wanted to receive. But I think it's important for us to realize that shame loves like it thrives in silence. It loves the thing. And so I, and so it's not mm. surprising that you couldn't speak about it because that's literally shame's favorite place to be in the dark. Yeah. It, it, it loves to be there. And so I, I love, I love that you share that because that is really how shame manifests in our life by keeping us from opening our mouths sometimes from keeping us from sharing, like you said, a burden, a life experience. It literally prevents us from talking about something that we have experienced because the reality is it's happened already. Mm -hmm. But yet shame is allowing us, shame keeps you sort of just like under a lock and a key. And so I, I really appreciate you sharing that because that is, that is really, that's a big piece. That's a big piece. I think that people sometimes miss with shame. That's the point. Shame wants to stay silent. Mm -hmm. But it's the breaking free of that and actually opening your mouth, actually sharing the stories that you can kind of move through it. It's yeah. not in the in the quiet. I, I mean, <laughs> I yet again, like another reason why this podcast is so important, because I think what we'll find is that, again, I focus about on shame regarding bodies and sexualities and, and motherhood. There's a lot, you know, there's a lot like now that's a new chapter in my life. Like I had a baby two and a half years ago. And so there was a lot of, you know, just a lot of shame throughout that with like, you know, uh, like wanting a girl, having a boy, yes. beautiful baby. I had boy. that same experience. You had that too, the gender disappointment. Very much so. Yeah. Very much so. Oh, it, it, it like I broke down in tears. Oh, same. In Target, looking at princess dresses. <laughs> I was like, I only plan to have one baby and he's a boy. Do you, when you look at the section for boys clothes, it's like, what is this trash? It's minuscule. I hate it. <laughs> but now his dumb little dinosaur shirts and his little choo-choo train shorts. I'm like, okay, it's pretty cute. <laughs> but like, you know, then the postpartum anxiety and depression. And like, I think, like you said, it's so key. It thrives in silence, in the dark and what we don't. And so of course you don't speak it out. So you can't find connection. So you think you're the only one going through this or the only one that's experienced this. And then you can't find the solutions of how to get better or that what you're experiencing is actually causing continual trauma over and over again, or it's causing you to become depressed or it's causing all of these other manifestations that shame brings weight gain of feeling just awful. Yeah. Feeling like you're a bad person yeah. for something that you either made a decision about or a decision was made for you right? or something that was completely out of your control. I mean, there was no way I could have predicted that I would be, that I would have had postpartum depression. No, no fucking way. No, I was like, I want a baby. I waited for 10 years to have a baby. I got here. Why do I feel so bad? Right. And so a big part of this podcast is just like letting it all hang out. Just let's bear our truths with some bravery yeah. because by just telling the story, you never know who's on the other end yeah. listening yeah. to this and thinking to themselves, holy shit, 
I am not alone. And that just adds a little light to that darkness or maybe gives them that next step to call a therapist or to call a sex coach or to have a conversation with their lover or whatever, whatever Mm. the next step for them might be, you know, Mm. but all it takes is some brave souls to be like, I'm ready, you know? And so that is, you know, I just appreciate you so much for just all the wisdom that you've brought and just your stories and, you know, especially being a black woman. And I know we haven't talked about like culture or race, but I would like to end with that because I think it's really important to talk about the intersections of race and sexuality and shame. What came to mind for me as you were, as you were asking that was just um, the instances in my life when I have been, I will say hypersexualized or um, treated in a way that wasn't necessarily what I would have wanted to be treated due to my race and due to my gender. And I think it's because overall, I think for the most part, society sometimes views, especially black women in the in a very hypersexualized manner. And so we're not necessarily given the same leeway, I'll say, in a lot of experiences, a lot of um, a lot of uh, circumstances. So, for example, I'll say this. Um, I can wear a particular dress that maybe is form fitting to my body shape and someone else who I'll say is a white woman beside me can wear the exact same dress and we have a different body shape. I will be told that my dress was inappropriate. Mm. But her dress is not inappropriate. It's the exact same dress. But because of the way that my body has sometimes been sexualized or even just viewed Mm -hmm. impacts how even how I decide to show up, what type of clothing I wear. I know previously, like I I mean, I worked as an uh, early childhood educator for a number of years. And in that field, I had to be very mindful of even how I chose to do my hair how I, uh, type of clothing that I chose to put on. Um, I like to have my nails done, how the design on my nails, because those things impact, unfortunately, someone's thoughts or beliefs of me before I have even opened my mouth. And so that comes into play, especially with our sexuality, because if I am not viewed similarly to everyone else, then my sexuality will not be viewed similarly to everyone else. And then it it really lends to, I would say, especially within the Black community overall, there is a, I will say, a higher prevalence of shame because of the fact that it's not spoken about among us and it's not spoken about outside of us either. Mm -hmm. You know, the sexuality that I learned seeing, there was nobody who looked like me. There wasn't sex educated as that were black. I never saw that growing up. I, I learned sexuality from a black educator not until I got to university. That was the first time I've ever met someone speaking about sexuality who was also black. Every other instructor I ever had, every other professor I ever had, had been white. Mm-hmm. And so understanding that that's also the lens in which I learned my sexuality from, the books that I read, the images that I seen, the porn that I looked at, never reflected me, mm-hmm. never reflected what I look like with a partner. So it's very, dis, um, it's disconnecting almost in a way because we're not able to see ourselves 
in the images that are supposed to be educational or supposed to lend information towards me, but it doesn't look like me. So is it really for me? It doesn't really, it does, is it really, you know, relative to how I feel and experience life? And so that's really, I find, is some, one of the biggest, I will say that one of my, my the biggest frustrations with the sexuality field is that the conversation around Black sexuality isn't necessarily as, as, as loud. And I think mm. it needs to be a little louder because we're very much, we have different um, experiences that we've gone through that lend to how my sexuality has been shaped. You know, I, I highly doubt had I had been a, someone other than white, at 16, I don't believe that the experience that I had in the doctor's office would have been the same. I don't think so. I, I, I can be pretty sure that it would have been slightly different had I been anything other than black. And he was black too. Right. And he, and he was black too. So, But had you been a 16 year old white woman, young girl, young girl, I don't, I don't know that he would have felt as bold to say that. Exactly, to say that, right. And you so might've reminded him of his daughter or his niece or someone. So he felt like he could speak like that to you. Right, but that's not what I needed at that time. Oh, hell <laughs> no. No one needs at that all. from anyone, especially not a goddamn man. Right. Although sometimes it's worse coming from a woman. You're like, bitch, you're supposed to be on my side. Right. <laughs> at least it's understandable, kind of coming from a dude. But I think it's really important to to recognize that that as much as I'm all for sexuality overall, but there is a special piece to the the part of Black sexuality that isn't necessarily spoken about. It isn't represented. Um, And that's something that I hear now, especially now that I'm in this field, how much people are like, oh my gosh, I never had anyone who looked like me who, who spoke about this. How come you're so confident talking about this? I I get that so much. It's unbelievable because I know it's not, I know it's not something that we we had in our communities. I didn't have it growing up. I just did not exist. I didn't know that there were black people who did this work. Like I just had no idea. It wasn't something that I found and I saw. And so it's interesting now that there are a lot more Black educators in, in this field. And I think it's necessary because, and not just Black, I think overall, any sort of, any race, any culture needs to be prevalent in the conversation when it comes to sexuality, because sex is a human thing. It's not, mm-hmm. you know, it's not a race thing. It's a human thing. So we are all doing it. So I really think that it, but I, I do think it's important to give the the level of respect that I think Black sexuality deserves because it it, it isn't spoken about. And it needs to be spoken about much more. Yeah. Well, you're just a beacon of, of light and hope for so many people. And so that's super, super dope. Um, for those who are like, you're right. I want more like enlightened black sexuality resources or movies or shows or something where I can see that happening and, and just know, like other than just being connected with you on Instagram and, and through your work, which we'll talk about, you know, as we close, is there anything that stands out to you of resources to point folks to um, who might be like, I really do want to at least just mm-hmm. see something, you know, or, yeah. Oh my yeah. gosh. 
Yeah, there's so many. Um, oh my goodness, there's so many black educators that I personally follow and love. Um, there is a sexologist named Shamira, uh, Shamira Howard, I believe her last name is. Um, Shambodi, she has a. Oh, she's name. great. Yeah, she's yeah. an amazing podcast. She's also a Toronto girl too. Oh, cool. Um, and you know, there's so many. Um, there's so many. Like there, uh, I can't remember the name of their. I think it's called. King Noir, I believe, is one of the name of the actress. He's a porn actress, but he also has a huge corporation. They they do ethical um, based porn. And a lot of their porn stars um, black actresses because they're really big on having pay equity and and, you know, safe ethical porn and practices, especially. And so that's something that I would say, like, if you're looking for it, interested in just seeing even visual aspects of um, you know, black sexuality in that way. There's there's an abundance of it out there. It's just you gotta dig a little bit. You gotta yeah. do a little research. You gotta do a little looking for that. But it's definitely there if you are looking to, to just it, just dive in a little bit more and 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 find it from because you want it also told from the voices that uh, the black voices that are actually putting forth positivity into the world. Also, because yeah. there's also that too. Like there's abundance of trash out there as well <laughs> i'm not going to sit here and say that there isn't yeah so it's also being mindful about where are you getting that information from and n- looking for sources that are definitely coming from from the spaces of people who want to uplift and empower black sexuality opposed to you know degrading it or demeaning it this has been my favorite just the best hour and a half <laughs> you're you're so sweet and just so full of wisdom and i'm just thrilled at our conversation where it's gone the twists and the turns um how can people find you how can people get more of this energy and this knowledge what's the best way to connect the best way to connect is definitely um, go through my website, RashidaAmmit.com. You can send me an email at Rashida, RashidaAmmit.com. Um, I play a lot on Instagram. I like to call it that. I play on Instagram. So you can definitely connect with me there at I am Rashida Ahmed. Um, that's really the ways to get a hold of me, to get in touch with me. If you're looking to, to work with me in that, in that capacity, if you just want to learn some more, if you just have some questions, like, I'm all here for ans- asking, answering questions and having conversations because I believe that that's the only way that we're going to actually be able to push any of this forward is if we actually talk about it. And so I'm here to just let's keep talking. Let's keep speaking. Let's keep having the dialogue going. And those are the ways to find me. Well, my loves, I hope that you had a good time laughing and loving and being with us during this hour and a half. Follow Rashida Ahmed at I am Rashida Ahmed on Instagram. Check her out. She is just such a light in the world. And if you want more of this content, if you want more of this fire, you know, it would be the most helpful thing to do. Go right onto Spotify, right onto Apple Podcasts and leave me a review. Tell me things that you love, don't love. Reach out to me on Instagram at Ladybits and Leadership. I am always down for new guest ideas, new ideas for the pod, um, situations you want to explore. I want to know it all. If you love this work, if you love listening to this podcast, or even if you like just low-key like it a little bit, send it to a friend. Send it to five friends. If you only have two friends, send it to both of them. Who knows what can come from this podcast. You just never know (laughs) 
the exciting adventures we're going to go on weekly. So I love you all. Happy Valentine's Day. I hope you enjoyed and I'll see you next week on Lady Bits and Leadership.